Hello, and welcome to episode 106 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Uh, well, as we get started here, I just want to throw out a congratulations to the Zeta War project. We mentioned them last time on the show. This is a Kickstarter for a closure script game. Um, looks like they hit their funding goal, so they will be building Zeta War and um, sharing some details about how that's made and using it as a platform to help people learn closure script. So very cool. Congratulations on that. I want to mention a couple things about Euro Closure. Euro Closure is taking place in Bratislava, Slovakia, August, sorry, October 25th and 26th in 2016. And the deadline for talk proposals is coming up real quick here. That's August 5th. So talk proposals need to be in by August 5th, 2016. So if you're thinking about uh, giving a talk, and you should, uh, make sure you get your proposal in before that deadline. Hopefully you're hearing this before that. Uh, another deadline associated with Euro Closure is the Opportunity Grant applications. So the Opportunity Grants are awarded to people to assist them to attend if they would not otherwise be able to. Uh, and those applications are being accepted until July 29th, uh, again, 2016. You can find out more information about everything related to Euro Closure at the website euroclosure.org. All right, another thing I want to mention has to do with the podcast itself. As you are aware, if you've been listening, uh, we have transcripts now, word-for-word transcripts that we post within a few days to a couple weeks of the uh, episode going up um, as we're able to. Uh, We had been putting them right on the podcast feed itself, but that actually caused us some technical issues that I won't bore you with the details of. Um, And so we've actually created a separate feed uh, for the transcripts, you can find that by going to the podcast home on the web. If you just look, um, you know, at cogtech.com slash podcast, um, look at the episode, you can scroll down, you can see, oh, there's a link to the transcript. Go there and you'll see the whole transcript feed. Um, and so that's going to let you, if you want, subscribe to just the transcripts or in addition, subscribe to the transcripts. And so when those go up, you'll get notified and whatever you know blog reader or whatever you use there's an rss feed that you can you can sign up so we think that's pretty cool actually that's going to let people consume the show in whatever way they like best uh you can continue to listen to it um you know via your podcast application um nothing's changed there or if you want you can point uh whatever blog reader you you use to the cognicast transcript feed and uh, consume them in the written form either way. So hope you find that helpful um, as with anything. And as we always say at the end of every show, we do welcome feedback either uh, via Twitter at Cognitech or you can email us at uh, podcast at Cognitech.com. So uh, let us know if you like that, if you have a problem with it um, or really with anything about the show, always happy to hear from you. But I will stop uh, blathering at you now and we will move on to episode 106 of the Cognicast. Um, Excellent. So, all right, we'll begin then. Well, welcome, everybody. Today is Wednesday, June 29th in the year 2016, and this is the Cognicast. Um, I am uh, pleased to once again welcome to the show uh, Michael Nygaard. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, Definitely uh, one of the people I always enjoy talking to. Um, So, before we jump into the reason why we're having you on today, although obviously that's the discussion um, let's go ahead with the initial question, which is about art. We always are interested in hearing how people experience or understand art, and so we ask them to tell us a little story or share an idea or an experience or something centered around the idea of art, whatever that means to them. So I wonder what you would like to uh, tell us today. Well, I've had to answer this question a few times now, so I, I keep having to dig farther and farther back. Uh, I'm going to go back to my first experience going to an actual concert hall and hearing concert music performed live. And it was for uh, uh, Richard Wagner's The Ring Cycle, which was fabulous. It was the LA Philharmonic uh, when I was in college, and it just it opened my eyes to a completely different world of music than I'd been listening to. And that feeling has still stayed with me. I, I think that great music has the ability to transport us, and it, it touches the human mind and heart in ways that few other things do totally agree i mean i think uh 
you know, we've talked many times before about uh, music on this show. And there's something something about it as an art form that's unique. Uh, so I wonder, though, whether that experience was special to you because it was live. Because I've been thinking a bit about live music recently, or if it was just the level of performance and the, the, the fact that you were there in person was less of a factor. You know, I think the thing about the music being performed live, and particularly in a concert hall, is that um, it surrounds you to such a degree that it's almost a tactile tactile experience as well as an auditory one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really hard to achieve in any kind of a home setup. Well, I'll say I've never developed the uh, audio engineering expertise to achieve that in a home setup. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's uh, right. And so I have friends that are, I'm sure you do have, that are serious audiophiles and have, you know, really gone to great lengths to set up that type of environment. But I think there still is something about live music. And you're not the first person, by the way, to make that comparison even on the show around um, it being beyond simply listening. Um, anyway, no, but the reason I'm wondering is because um, I've been using Spotify a lot recently um, mm-hmm. to listen to music. And and so I'll go to artists and I'll just say, oh, I want to listen to everything by, say, Iron Maiden, right? And that's what I'm doing today. Um, and so I'll listen to all of it. And I've discovered that for the most part, but with some exceptions, for the most part, I don't like live albums, which surprised me. I do like live music. I do own some live albums that I that I generally enjoy. But I found that by and large, when I'm listening to CDs and I'm trying to figure out what to add to my library to listen to again later, I almost always skip the live ones. Um, they just, they don't quite, there's something about live music and I don't know what, what it is exactly except maybe that uh, it's got none of the presence right and it's got all of the kind of um, there's a certain element in which in which the you know the rec- music being recorded live you've got all the crowd noise and everything that to some degree detracts from the music itself when you're not there if that makes any sense mm, I, I see what you mean I do listen to a lot of classical music and pretty much all classical music is recorded live uh, other than uh, movie scores where the orchestra is in a, a studio, mostly it's just you know mics at an ordinary concert performance, but they tend to be careful to not get the audience right. uh, sounds into those, as opposed to as opposed to uh, Bruce Dickinson yelling, "I can't hear you." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Well, anyway, we should move on. Um, that fascinating conversation as always. But there's another thing that I want to talk to you about today. And it's driven by the series of blog articles that you have been writing for the Cognitech blog um, at blog.cognitech.com. And the title is The New Normal. Really Mm -hmm. fascinating series. And uh, it's interesting, when you and I first um, started to kick around the idea of having you on the show, it wasn't really kicking around. It was more like, we're going to have you on the show. When should we do it? Yeah, you kind of grabbed me by the lapels. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, it's good stuff. And I I really want to share with our audience. Uh, But I wanted to say that... um, I think I had been referring to it when I was talking to you. Oh, you should come on the show and talk about microservices since you're writing a microservices blog series. And you're very polite. You didn't correct me. But having gone back and looked at the series uh, again recently, I think I was extremely mistaken to say that that it's about microservices per se. So uh, that this is just another good reason to have you on today to correct me and to explain uh, about the series and about some of the really interesting things you had to say in there. So I, I really probably shouldn't put too many words in your mouth. I should really hand <laughs> it over to you and say, hey, man, this series you're writing, share a little bit. I mean, I don't think everybody's read it, but I'm sure some people have. But still, from in your words, like, what is it about? What 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 is this this idea or a set of ideas you're trying to get across? Okay. Well, um, uh, it's easy to see how you might Uh, perceive it as microservices because that's in there. You could also perceive it as being about anti-fragility because that's in there, Uh, the economics of software, and that's in there. Um, So what I'm really trying to do is take a number of different threads of conversation, of change in the industry, um, and weave them together to synthesize them and show how they support each other and how they should inform what we do uh, in the probably the coming decade. Uh, some of the threads are driven by technology change. Uh, new platforms make new architectures feasible that would have been not economically viable in the past. They also come from, I, I think, an increasing sophistication in our management structures and the processes by which we deliver things. 
So uh, you know, we've we've talked for a long time about the dissolution of the command and control network and the the failure of the hierarchic model and the emergence of network models in uh, in corporations. Well, that network model among the people. It's now possible to match the network model among the people with a network model among the artifacts that the people create. So kind of weaving those things together and saying, what does this all mean? It's taken me a, a number of posts to sort of lay out the story because this is the kind of thing that people who've been on this journey have just assimilated along the way incrementally. But if you're coming into it from a more traditional IT organization or a more traditional software architecture or structure, it can be really overwhelming. And so, you know, people will focus on one aspect and you'll get a mandate from your CTO that says, we have to rebuild everything as microservices because, you know, they pick up on that salient fact. But the problem is if you do just that in isolation, it will fail. You have to do a bunch of things together incrementally one little step at a time. Yeah, and, and that's actually something that on rereading the um, the series, I, I really started to see that that theme, I think, which is one that I like a lot, the, the idea of, well, step back and take a look at the big picture, right? Like you have to have a, you have to have a strategy. Um, and you talk a bit about Agile, for instance, and how Agile can be naively applied. And I've always, you know, I've, I've come to understand at least that Timmy Wald is one that says, you don't take a vacation by going to the airport and looking at whichever ticket is cheapest, buying that one, and then arriving and getting in the first cab and going wherever it's going to go, right? Like you have to have a plan, even if you do have, uh, even if you also need to have flexibility. And I think, um, again, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but it seems like that plays very much into the various threads that you're uh, tying together. Do you think that's a fair statement? Uh, I think that might be a bit of a, a straw man presentation of Agile from Tim. Uh, I actually do think that agile development is a great way to handle things at the team scale. Um, the problem that I lay out is that having team scale agile development and, and great velocity there uh, is a necessary element of corporate success, but it's not sufficient. You do need to have a strategy at the larger scale that is implemented by the teams. You know, so the, the teams represent the execution of that strategy. But the strategy doesn't emerge from just what, you know, the aggregate all, all of your teams are doing. Mm. Yeah, big picture, right? Mm -hmm. And there, there have been some efforts to take the agile approach and sort of scale it up to the level of the whole organization. I think that's mistaken. First of all, I've never seen one of those succeed. Uh, second, it, it still loses out on that element of saying somebody somewhere needs to be in the position of deciding that you need a new team or that an old team needs to go away or that, you know, you're making this large scale shift in strategy that requires coordinated action among all the different teams. And I don't see that coming out of any of the, the large scale agile efforts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be clear, I was paraphrasing Tim and I think his, uh, uh I, I just don't want to put words in his mouth. Um, you know, I, I guess I did, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, he was talking about like a, a naive application in a narrow sense. Anyway, so I want to come back to the series. You've, you've sort of been building a story arc, I think uh, it's fair to say, as you've made these posts. And I wonder if you could take us through that arc in brief, just to kind of outline it for people. And then maybe we can drill down in a few areas. Sure. One of the elements that I try to address is the question of risk and risk management. Um, so at one time, our approach to risk management in software was essentially to make sure nothing ever breaks. And that was typified by having a single computer, you know, the mainframe era, having all the programs run on there, and strong verification processes. As soon as you get two computers interacting, there's the possibility that one of them breaks and the other one doesn't. And the one that doesn't break, keeps running its software, making assumptions about being able to talk to the first one. And we start having to change our uh, risk model from saying it's all or nothing, you know, either the machine's working or it's not, to a more probabilistic approach. There's some likelihood that all of your machines are running. With just two machines, maybe we can build them both to be super reliable and, you know, have uh, high quality parts and redundancy down to, you know, dual backplanes and dual buses. This was the era of the tandem computer. But increasingly, the workloads we're handling 
uh, require horizontal scaling, not vertical scaling. And this has been true for some time. You know, we're we're not entering the horizontal scaling era. We're uh, hitting its its peak, perhaps. When we're horizontally scaling, if you run the probability, uh, the the odds of having everything working at any given moment in time are actually not great. You know, it's it's likely that something is malfunctioning or something is being deployed somewhere in your network at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this can be routine or it can be uh, exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. You know, you may be in the middle of swapping out a bunch of hardware as part of a routine refresh cycle and then some other uh, piece of equipment fails that tries to redirect all the load to the machines that you're swapping out. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing happens all the time. And this is the birthday problem, right? Yeah, in a way, uh, you can frame it as the birthday problem. Um, maybe you want to uh, describe that for our Sure, listeners. yeah. So the, 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 the non-intuitive result is that in a given crowd of people, uh, in a given group of people, the probability that two people have the same birthday um, somewhere in that group goes up much faster than our intuition would say. So for instance, uh, if you take a group of, of two people, the odds that they have the same birthday is 1 in 365 roughly, right? Uh, as that number goes up, three, four, five people, you can ask um, someone who hasn't been exposed to this problem, where do you, what's the number where that probability goes above 50%? And I can't actually remember off the top of my head, it's it's somewhere in the low... It's like 20 or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like 22. It's like a soccer team, I think is how I heard it described, or a, a soccer game, right? But it's a very low number, right? It's way below what you might think, 180. And the reason is that uh, I won't go through the math, but it's something along the lines of what you're really computing is the probability that, you know, A and B don't have the same birthday or that A and C don't have the same birthday or that A and D don't have the same birthday and then the opposite of that. And so that number actually, um, you know, even though you start with a very small probability, um, you exponentiate it and then subtract one from that and that number goes towards one very, very quickly. And so what you're saying is the same in the sense that the system is broken if any two pieces of it have a bad day. They have the same birthday, right? And so that probability very quickly goes uh, rapidly towards uh, 100% uh, as the number of pieces involved moves above some fairly small number. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we have this state that I call continuous partial failure. And the interesting thing is we can respond to continuous partial failure in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is to say it's an error condition, it's the abnormal state, we need to work to stop it. The other way we can approach it is to embrace it and say, actually, we're going to use the fact of continuous partial failure to force us to architect our systems so that they are resilient to that kind of failure. And actually, the more of these continuous partial failures we endure, the stronger our systems get. This is the thread of anti-fragility working its way through. Actually, if we go down the first path and try to make things treat continuous partial failure with Java exceptions flowing through the code base and so on, it's a recipe for brittleness. And when things do break, they're going to break in a much larger way and in a much broader way. In contrast, if you embrace continuous partial failure it becomes much more like you're decomposing your failure domains into smaller and smaller grains and failures don't cross those boundaries. When you do that, not only is your total risk reduced, but you can actually do things like deliver software all the time mm. whenever the team feels like it instead of trying to wait for you know two in the morning when traffic is low and you can take an outage. Because deploying software looks like a, a failure in the service that's being deployed. And so everything is just going to continue functioning happily as you deploy your software. So uh, by embracing this uh, anti-fragile approach and embracing continuous partial failure, we actually get the ability to do deployments much more frequently. Um, and and that presumably delivers value because you're getting features out faster. Yeah, well, I think everybody can agree that painful deployments are worse than easy deployments, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody's been, maybe not everybody, I guess, but many people have been through the the case of well we rolled this thing out and it didn't work and it was like oh my gosh it was a it was a tire fire and you know we had to roll everything back and even that took a while because like we 
bash the software into an existing system and then we couldn't undo it because it turned out that the package management system didn't let us install blah 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 blah. you're gonna have to put a trigger warning on this episode because somebody listening probably just had flashbacks yeah no kidding (laughs) and that's just the picture when you're only deploying one system if you extend your viewpoint out to the organizational scale if you require outages in order to deploy software you have to coordinate deployments across teams Mm mm-hmm and that's a hard enough problem with just a pair of teams. Think about you know dozens or hundreds of teams across the enterprise, and now you're trying to coordinate release windows through some change management board, uh, and it's, it's just an unsolvable problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, this is something that I wondered about when I was reading the article, and um, I've, uh, you, you alluded to kind of one of the approaches, one of the techniques, one of the tools that you can use to to get some of this capability in your book, right? The circuit breaker pattern, which I have used um, very successfully uh, via uh, Netflix's Hystrix library. Um, I'm sure there are many other implementations. That was the one I happened to use. Worked great. Um, but what, I guess, and maybe this is coming in a future article, the, the, the series certainly so far has been focused at a different level, but I wonder if you could help us understand some of the particular techniques that one can employ to get this sort of capability. Yeah, I, I definitely can. And uh, actually, part 11, which I'm working on this week, uh, will address sort of some of the implementations that you can do at the micro scale to give you the macro scale attributes that I'm looking for. Circuit breakers are great. Another approach that I use are uh, bulkheads. So you create multiple instances of services. Sometimes they're serving different populations. So maybe you split things up geographically, and even if one country's service is unavailable, other countries continue to function. The key with bulkheads is that you have to separate things all the way down to the database. Otherwise, you're really not separated at all. You still have the common mode issues. Bulkheads are something that you can do pretty easily in a virtualized environment as well. We have the ability to do automatic migrations at this point. So some of the techniques that Jez Humble talks about in continuous delivery work really well for this too. Um, something like blue-green deployments, you can have a supervisor watching a service, and if the service goes unavailable, spin up a new one in a different region, something along those lines. Uh, something that Hystrix implements uh, in addition to the circuit breakers is the idea of a fallback strategy. So if I can't communicate with my service provider, can I use the cached response from the last time I called? Uh, or can I use a placeholder, You know, some kind of an estimate to show and then follow up later with the, uh, the real answer. Another great strategy is just to make things asynchronous. You know, we default to thinking about things in terms of synchronous request response uh, loops, but there are a great many business processes that can be made into a series of messages and queues. You even have the option of doing that as a fallback. So you can say, I'm gonna make the synchronous call Uh, But if that fails, I'm going to drop something in a queue. And I'll return a response to the user that says you'll get a follow-up email in 24 hours or whatever. Now, a lot of these are both technical decisions and business decisions. um, And they do have the effect of kind of shifting work around between teams. So it definitely requires coordination. um, But they're all viable ways of saying a failure in my service doesn't need to propagate to the others around me. Yeah, the point about asynchrony made me think of because uh, I mean I certainly you know have that um, what do you want to call it um, predilection right for viewing things as synchronous, even though if you look at the real world right, especially right now, you think about the impetus towards sending a text message instead of picking up the phone and calling right. Like a phone call is asynchronous, right? You're going to call someone, you're going to wait for them to pick up, they're going to answer, you're going to talk back, whatever. Whereas text messages are asynchronous, and we seem to have. Um, for reasons that maybe aren't super helpful in this uh, conversation. But still, we seem to have a strong preference for that asynchronous mode of communication um, in that realm, even though you're holding the device that is perfectly capable of communicating with the same person synchronously. So, um, yeah, obviously it's something that we're capable of thinking about as a, as a human-level process. You know, I, I think that analogy um, is actually a pretty rich source because we can think about other aspects of making that phone call. Um, right now I'm talking to you over what's essentially a phone. Um, it's voice over IP. 
while I'm talking to you this way, I can't also be having a conversation with someone else. But with text, I can multiplex it, right? And so if I have a queue for incoming work, I can multiplex work from many different sources with uh, a single processor. So I have a different way of approaching the workload, and maybe I don't need to scale as big for the processor. The other thing is I can get behind a little bit and catch up. So I don't need to scale my service to match the peak demand or the, the sum of the peak demands of all of my consumers. Right? I only need to scale it to catch up within a reasonable SLA. Uh, I think those are both uh, important issues. There's one other aspect of making a phone call, which you can think about placing the call and the ringing on the other end. Uh, you can think about it two ways. One, it's a handshake to initiate a conversation, just like a TCP three-phase handshake. Uh, but the other way is to say, when I call you, I'm asking for permission to talk to you. Uh, and if you don't pick up, you've denied that permission. When we build services, I think too often we build a service with a specific consumer in mind. And we don't think about enabling our service to be used by other consumers without explicit permission. So whenever I build a service, I want to make sure that um, I'm not just serving one population of consumers, but anyone else in the company can write a new consumer of my service and start making calls without necessarily informing me first. Of course, I have to provide enough you know, technical documentation and visibility that they can do that. But when you think about that notion of doing things, uh, enabling people to do things without your permission, uh, it causes you to make some different decisions in your protocol design that uh, greatly reduce the amount of coupling, make the context a lot more explicit, uh, and make your service more generally useful uh, and provide more residual value. So your service can be reused in new use cases that you haven't considered when you wrote it. I want to drill down on this a little bit. So when, you, when you're talking about without permission, do you mean like without prior agreement that they are going to be a customer of your service or a consumer of your service? Or do you mean something along the lines of, you're not talking about like security implementation, like authentication or authorization. What exactly no, do you mean I'm, by I'm that? Not talking about, I'm not talking about authentication or authorization. I'm talking about team scale agreements. So if you think about, um, say, uh, uh, some customer you've been in that has a, a database of their customers, to get access to that database, you probably had to negotiate with the other team. And sort of once you had the credentials and once you were able to talk to it, uh, maybe it met your needs, maybe it didn't. But the technical aspect of getting access was probably much easier then the political aspect or the inter-team communication needed to make sure you were going to be allowed to use their service. We'll go even a step further. If you needed to create customers in that database, you know, so you, you actually have an app that's a customer touch point. People can create accounts. You need to be able to create customers in that database. You have even a higher level of negotiation to go through. So when I'm saying without permission, I mean literally that anyone can approach your service and use it valuably without having to talk to anyone on your team. Now, obviously in a company, you need to have uh, a trust boundary somewhere. Maybe you define that as your business unit or your division or something like that. Um, and I do have mechanisms for putting uh, gateways and, and policy enforcement at the perimeter of those units. But uh, within the unit, yeah, they can, they can make the call without, having to have a conversation first. Right. That, that makes perfect sense to me. I'm, uh, I, I am wondering too, to, so we've been thinking a lot about spec recently, obviously, uh, closure spec. And one of the key things about spec or one of the things that kind of jumps out at you when you look at it is the use of namespaced keywords. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself as I hear you say this, that that might be a fairly important aspect of easily implementing uh, the type of thing you're talking about because it lets you have a unique identifier for a piece of data that you can attach semantics to and not have to go and look up like, I mean, you could still use unnamespaced keywords and have a repository on your, uh, in your team of what this particular piece of data means exactly. But I feel like there's something about using namespace keywords that 
makes that easier that maybe now you can have some sort of registry where you can keep documentation it doesn't have to be attached to that particular service and that that might somehow aid people in navigating the sea of capabilities within an organization i see where you're going and i agree on the value of having a global namespace as much as i would like everyone to rewrite things in closure and use spec i, I think you know we're going to be in a polyglot world uh, for a long long time sure uh, so the equivalent of that in a polyglot world is a URL. So, you know, I, I'm not a fan, for example, of passing around a raw ID, uh, you know, just a number or an alphanumeric string. Um, because if you hand me an ID, say we're talking about uh, a policy number for an insurance company, you hand me an ID, I don't know where it came from, or rather... I have to know, I have to make assumptions about where it came from. And that means I can only go talk to one place to say, I want to exchange this policy number for uh, information about the policy. Um, or maybe we have a bunch of different services, but they all have to share the same policy number. Uh, the problem is your company will do something crazy like acquire another company. And now you've got two universes of policy numbers. Maybe they're even formatted the same way, so you can't tell lexically which one it came from. You see, the problem is that the policy number doesn't give me any context about where it came from or where I can go to exchange it for more info. If I have a full URL, uh, then I can always resolve that to something. Um, that, uh, that URL carries an explicit context along with it rather than having the implied context of the, the naked ID. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm wondering is what your thoughts are on using URLs as keys, because what you're talking about is if I imagine you know, the data going in and out of some service as a map, which I think is a reasonable thing to do. Um, you know, you're talking about using, I think, using URLs as keys. The ID uh, is the value of some ID as a, is a URL. But I mean, is there also value or different value in using URLs in the same way for keys so that I can say, well, this is ID, but I'm not going to use ID because when you use ID, it means this. And when I use ID, it means this. And when she uses ID, it means this, mm -hmm. but rather a URL that scopes my, that identifier to some, you know, particular semantic concept. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I might not do it on the level of every key just because of the, the massive overhead implied there. But for example, imagine that every message you pass on the wire um, includes a URN to someplace where I can go and look at that message format. Mm. Um, or it includes a URN that lets me go and resolve it to a spec on what the commitments are about that message format. Uh, at that point, uh, we're starting to make even the language of the system be explicit and discoverable and usable without permission. So there's an outfit out there called uh, Confluent.io that did a really cool thing. Um, they're building like this big data streaming platform on top of Kafka. Um, one of the things that they do is they have a Kafka topic, which is their registry of message definitions. So when a message is received, you can take the... Uh, uh, the, the token that represents the type of message and go look up the definition. In their case, they're using Avro, which can actually load definitions dynamically and unpack the message according to that definition. So it's not just a documentation thing. It's actually part of the functionality of the system. Um, but even if you just treat it as documentation, it's useful to have that idea that, you know, I can publish my message types for my uh, service and... Uh, you know, I can publish it without permission and other people can use it without permission. Hmm. Really reminds me that idea of shipping the URN along with, with the message and having it apply to the whole message really reminds me of um, like having an XML default namespace, right? Where you're saying mm -hmm. there's, an, there's a context that flows down through the parts of this, I guess, document in the case of XML. Yes. Um, and it gives them semantics without making me take on the burden of saying it every time I express some fact. Yes. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. 
It's almost like uh, there was some good stuff in XML that we threw out when we went to curly braces you instead know, of angle brackets. I know. I've said before that I think I'm going to maybe catch flack for this, but I think <laughs> I think JSON was really a step backwards from XML. I know people do not like the syntax of XML, but you know, going to something where only anyway, we, there's there's just some namespaces is a big deal, and uh, and the fact that you can't really do them uh, in JSON is a is a as a liability and there are other issues as well, but um, I'm not well, looking to I, go back to XML. I already have something better than either one of them <laughs> for my systems, but um, yeah. Yeah. But that, that notion of namespaces of providing some context for interpretation around the semantics of a message, it, it is actually pretty important. Yeah. Um, and I view it as important, not just for correct functioning of systems, but for that without permission uh, characteristic where, you know, I want every team to be able to deploy their systems whenever they want, and I want them to be able to uh, communicate about how they act uh, without permission. Mm -hmm. And to me, by the way, this this answers one of the common questions about microservices uh, from people coming from traditional environments. You know, they'll look at it and they'll go, "Well, these microservices—that's nothing different than SOA." Um, and I actually see the differences as being almost entirely non-technical and about process and permission. So with SOA, when you publish your service, you then have to communicate with some other group to make it visible through the ESB and to publish your message formats and to make sure that you meet all the governance requirements. In fact, most of the books on SOA are about SOA governance. The whole approach to microservices says no. No governance, no process. Everybody publishes their own thing because the risk to our organization of being as slow as the governance makes us go is greater than the risk of occasional system breakage. Right, which comes back to how do you address system breakage? And the answer is to be good at dealing with it, right? From the either by, and you mentioned this in your series, either by actually making it happen. I, I had the amusing experience of um, explaining this, explaining the uh, chaos monkey, that, you know, that thing that Netflix has that you mentioned that runs around and actually you know, knocks over various bits of their infrastructure to some people who hadn't been exposed to it. And they looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> it's a really bizarre concept for people that haven't run into it before. Yeah, and this is why it's taken me so many uh, words to articulate this whole thing, because uh, it does spring from some different premises. And if if your assumptions are different and your premises are different, then, um, yeah, the conclusions will look insane. Uh, and they're also kind of self-supporting, right? Like this idea of being able to do things without permission requires a certain kind of architecture. And that architecture requires you to have this approach to failure. Uh, but when you have that approach to failure, you can do some other things. So yeah, they're, they're mutually reinforcing ideas, which is why, um, kind of laying them out in a linear fashion in, in words is challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think you've done a good job. And, and we were actually in the middle of kind of following through uh, the arc today. I guess we even got a little bit of a peek into stuff you're, you're working on, which is awesome. Um, but let's see, where were we uh, in the, please continue, continue to carry us through the, the story arc of your series. <laughs> well, the, the next piece that we really haven't talked about is, um, uh, question of sort of durability of the software and whether we should think of it as an asset or a liability. Um, uh, a lot of software development in, in enterprises is capitalized, meaning uh, it's accounted for as if you were buying new machines and the machines were going to make you more productive and therefore increase the value of your uh, enterprise. Uh, but it doesn't act very much like an asset. Uh, a lot of the software we write gets thrown away and rewritten before the asset depreciation period would be done. And when accounting finds out about this, they have to take it as a write-off and uh, all kinds of ugliness uh, happens to, to mark it as a disposed asset and so on. The problem with that viewpoint is it causes us to write code and keep it around for a lot longer than we should. Uh, so I've been to a number of places where you know they have the, these very large monolithic code bases, some of them 10 years old or more. And uh, yeah, 
legacy systems in Java, really. They can't make changes anymore. It embodies old architectures and they've glued bits on over time, but the degree of coupling throughout this whole code base is such that they view it as a massive asset, but it's actually stopping them from doing things and they're pouring tons of money into just keeping it running. It behaves a lot more like a liability than an asset. So I really like to have the idea that we need to be refreshing our code, tearing it apart, throwing away piece by piece, and rebuilding it piece by piece, more or less continuously. We use a lot of building metaphors for software, and I think that gives the false impression that you know you reach a point where you're essentially done and you just need somebody to go around and change light bulbs and you know repaint the walls once in a while. Um, but that's not true. The software is only done when it's deleted. So I'd rather see companies build things in smaller pieces that they can throw away more rapidly and rewrite when needed instead of trying to face down uh, you know, a, a three-year, multi-million dollar rewrite of something because at the bottom, it's still a 10-year-old implementation of the Java data objects uh, beta standard that got customized for this company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they just they can't maneuver at all with that kind of an anchor. So I, I'm interested to come and explore this a little bit because I've long been, I've, I've, I've had problems with the building metaphor for quite a while. I think for a variety of reasons. One is, of course, that analogies are imperfect and, uh, you know, they always get stretched to cover scenarios that are not helpful. But another is that I think there's a sense in which what we do is fundamentally different from building a building in that I think it's maybe more like building a factory, right? You're not building a home that is to some degree static, right? I mean, of course, homes require maintenance, right? They, they do. As anyone that owns a home knows that they're also never done. Um, but you're not generally adding new rooms or taking the roof off or, or you know, building a second home right next to it. But I wonder whether it's more like building a, f- a factory because, first of all, um, a program. We write source code to produce a program. That program then runs, and it maybe runs many times over the course of its lifetime. And, and it's the actual execution that's the, the end result, right? Like the program itself is static. It's just a set of instructions for how to do something when it actually is, becomes active. And so I wonder whether there's any juice in the metaphor of making a, building a factory. And of course, now that's the sort of thing where, you know, okay, if I want to if I, if I want to view it as building a factory, well, of course I need to be able to change it because the factory is producing widgets today, but tomorrow it needs to produce wadgets. And, and you know, if the, if the, the uh, conveyor belt is bolted to the floor, then I'm not going to be able to run it past the, the new paint shed or whatever it is that needs to happen, right? Like you need to be able to move the pieces around so you can make different things because you're building, building a thing that actually when run produces the desired effect. You're not producing the desired effect directly as you would be with constructing a home, if that makes any sense. I, I definitely see where you're going. Um, you're, you're falling into a trap that I often fall into, which is explaining one domain people don't understand by likening it to another domain they don't understand. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, but I want to throw a different wrinkle at you, Okay. which is... Um, in, in the building metaphor, you can think about the cranes and the scaffolding and the piles of materials that you use to construct the building as a temporary thing. And once the building is done, you take all that extra crap away. Um, but increasingly, I want people to regard the machinery that you use for building your source code, deploying it, uh, moving it out to production as its own machine worthy of production uh, level, uh, service level agreements and production level attention. So the machinery that you use to produce the factory is also something that we need to keep around and maintain. Mm. So then we start getting into factories for making factories and that becomes even harder to visualize. Yeah. The the, uh, factory, factory, factory pattern is well known, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know you're talking about something slightly different, but I, I couldn't help but mention that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think there's a sense in which um, what I was trying to say was um, along the lines of what you expressed, right? But I like the fact that you've carried it even 
even further and that idea that you need to be as cognizant, you need to have the same standards for that stuff. Because I think if you kind of look at the way that, um, you know, TDD or whatever you want to call it, um, say what you will about any particular manifestation of that philosophy, I do think, I think most people would agree that having developers write tests, think about testing is, is useful. But in any mm-hmm. event, that, that idea that that stuff should also have quality attributes that you care about, right? All of the stuff around the code. Like we all care that our code works, is efficient, et cetera. But the idea that you also are building, using, maintaining, consuming, producing other tools to that end, that those those also have quality attributes that you should care about and invest in to appropriate degrees, I think is a, is a powerful one. Yeah, um, some of us have, have been saying uh, development is production, meaning just like the uh, the systems we create for our users inside a company, uh, those are the production systems by which our users do their job. The development pipeline and tooling is the production system by which we do our job. And so, you know, why would why should we treat ourselves with reckless abandon <laughs> uh, if our time is valuable as well? Right. Yep. Yeah, you wouldn't to go back to that analogy. <clears throat> if you went down to the place where the where the cranes are being built that you're going to use to lift the scaffolding into place, that you're going to use to construct a building that's ultimately the place where your customers are going to live, well, you you would kind of hope that the factory that's making those cranes has got good quality control and you know a, a big red button that someone can hit if somebody gets their hand caught in the mangler, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and and the cranes are maintained on site and they're kept in good working order. Right, right. Yep. Cool. Well, that's that was a fascinating divergence. Well, not a divergence. That was a fascinating um, sidebar. I don't know. Whatever it was, it was good. But I want to make sure that we come back to uh, the series since that is sort of our focus today. Um, so uh, before I dragged you off into talking about factories making factories of, to make factories, <laughs> uh, bring me back. Bring me back to the arc. Well, I think we, we jumped ahead a bit okay. uh, into the, talking about the team scale autonomy. Uh, so uh, I want to go back to that idea of team scale autonomy just a little bit and talk about, you know, what are the things that typically break down that autonomy? So, you know, if you think about a dev team that's been deploying code rapidly and something goes wrong and all of a sudden a new development manager gets put in place and you know they say something typically condescending like we need to have some grown-ups around here or it's time to get serious or something like that and what are the things that would often cause them to uh to make that maneuver and and start reigning in the chaos and getting people under control usually it's some sort of um uh perceived or actual threat or risk right like there's there's a um you know something some so oh, this is going to be a problem and i'm i mean if i want to be Cynical a little bit. It's someone thinks they're going to get in hot water with someone else. Yeah, or maybe it already has happened. Right. But if we if we sort of drill down under the hypothetical, you know, uh, maybe we had a big system outage. Yeah. Uh, or maybe there was corrupted data that cost a lot of money to clean up. What we usually find is that it's it's some breakdown in boundaries where this team was able to do something that they couldn't fix themselves. Right, so they created problems for other people, and maybe it's just that you have a separate operations group from your dev group, and so every problem from dev becomes an operations problem. Um, that's, by the way, one of the motivators for DevOps and merging those two teams or blending those two teams. Um, but another kind of breakdown is a, a technological breakdown. Maybe somebody um, was making a call with bad data and it crashed the supplier. Or uh, maybe they were responding with bad data and it crashed a consumer. Sometimes it's, it's just about um, uh, dependencies. So imagine you're in uh, sort of the large enterprise uh, shop and somebody brings in a new version of a package. Um, let's leave Java aside and just say, you know, somebody uses NuGet in uh, Visual Studio and they update a dependency and works fine for them. They push their assembly and then that dependency 
is incompatible with everyone else and the whole rest of the application doesn't work. It's a breakdown of boundaries, right? So in that case, you had multiple different subteams having a shared dependency at a, at a binary level on something that runs in process. So you want to break that down and say, all right, no more shared dependencies. Um, either uh, we just get rid of all of that uh, and we have no shared libraries at all, or we run in different processes so you can upgrade your dependency and I can upgrade my dependency at separate times. I think this is one of the motivators for containers, by the way. Um, so we can package up not only all of our uh, library dependencies, but our whole OS stack of dependencies, package it all up as a container. So uh, the the way to look at this is to keep saying, what is the coupling between my team and other teams? What are the dependencies between people and in source code and in libraries? Uh, and let me find ways to either invert these dependencies, uh, break them, turn a hard dependency into a soft dependency, meaning it doesn't cause a failure in the consumer if uh, the supplier fails, mm. um, or factor dependencies out so the two teams are independent from each other but each have a dependency on something new that we can put under a high SLA. I was just um, trying to marry that up with, um, and I think it works very well. I was trying to marry that up with the idea that you posit early on, and that's I don't I don't think you would claim it's your idea, but the idea that if something happens and it's bad, you don't want to create a process that makes it less likely to happen. You want to create a process that makes it easy to deal with. Um, I think I'm, I'm fair in saying in this series you were, you were implying that it, you would make it easy to deal with through practice in doing so, but also, of course, through infrastructure to handle that. Uh, so this is a, an example where I'm like, okay, well, how would I apply that to dependencies? And I think you covered that by saying, well, here are some architectures that will mean you can do that sort of thing all the time and it won't matter as much because it's factored out or you're, or you're separate. Mm -hmm. um, did, I, did I get that right? Yes. The way that I describe it is uh, that we have two different parts. And th this is what part 11 is really going to be about. We have two different aspects to preserving team scale autonomy. One is shrinking the failure domains. And, and that's largely a technical exercise of drawing different architectural boundaries and having different ways of... Um, handling calls across those boundaries that are safer. Um, and then the other is kind of giving the team tools so that they know what they're doing and they don't create problems for others as a process. And, and I haven't articulated all this yet, which is why part 11 isn't up yet. Um, mm -hmm. But I think of these as uh, sort of safety factors. Uh and one of the analogies I want to go to there is in word processors. The biggest safety factor in a word processor is the undo feature, <laughs> right? You can do any crazy crap you want as long as you have confidence that undo is going to get you back to where you were. Um, that makes it safe for you to explore the features of the word processor. You know, you can say, oh, what, what does this button do? Oh, that button turns everything into, I don't know, Klingon. I'm going to undo that. I don't want my document in Klingon. Um, but why no. wouldn't you, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Or Git, right? I mean, revision control, same thing. Yeah, and in fact, a lot of the sharp edges in Git are uh, where it allows power users to sort of do actions that have no undo. Hmm. Right? And that's when people really get into trouble. For instance, uh, pushing a rewritten history to a branch that was previously pushed. Right. You know, terrible idea because it's not undoable. But another thing that you would really like to have, I mean, undo is great if you just uh, shut down every virtual machine in your entire region. Uh, being able to undo that is great. But wouldn't it be better to know that that's what was going to happen first? So um, uh, visibility into the consequences of the action you're about to take is even better. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to have preview. I'm going to change a firewall rule. What happens? Oh, everybody breaks. I better not change that firewall rule. Mm -hmm. You know, something along those lines. Um, I think that kind of visibility is is really key for uh, safety as well. Datomic has this, 
right? With. With. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. You, can, you can do a speculative value of the DB. Uh, so there are a couple of other principles to creating safety. I'm not going to go through all of them now, or people won't have a reason to read part 11. Like. I realize you haven't published it. We will be happy to have you back again, Mike. It's always great to talk to you. So, no, yeah, no obligation to go through those in detail. Okay. Overall, the, the idea is, you know, once you've created team-scale autonomy, there will be social forces trying to tear it down and reconstruct the command and control structure because it's just sort of a natural primate instinct. And so we need to have mechanisms to uh, to make it more likely that we can preserve that team scale autonomy and, and independent action. Yeah, people, right? That's always the always the hard part. Um, I, I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to. I, I don't know if you have any uh, any answers for us there right now, or if that's coming in the series. But uh, that's also another thing I'd love to hear about at some point. Uh, just the you know what are the what are the structures that enable that, right? How do you how do you make it in people's best interests to because it's fascinating to me, right? Like you can be at in an organization where every single person you meet is interested in promoting the the interests of the overall organization. Mm-hmm. Every last person you meet is like that, and still, and still, you wind up with a direction that is, uh, to put it generously, suboptimal. Um, and so it's it's fascinating to me to think about how. Maybe it doesn't make sense to go there right now, but it's fascinating to me to think about how you can create systems wherein the organization um, acts in its own best interest, if that's the right way to put it. Yeah, that is a a really fascinating question. Um, I'm not likely to address it in this series. Sure. um, But I have plenty of examples of the kind of thing you're talking about. I've also observed that there are a number of sort of high-velocity, high-performance methods, I'll call them, uh, that are fragile to having one person who doesn't understand it Mm. uh, acting in some way. So an example is agile software development. So I've seen a a great high-performing agile team, uh, one where we actually, uh, on the team, decided to shrink the team because we were going too fast. The the business couldn't assimilate change as rapidly as we were creating it. A year later, and one project manager different, the team room was disbanded. Everyone was back in their cubes. Everyone had their ownership of their portion of the code base. Uh, unit tests were breaking and getting deleted all over the place. Basically, everything that had allowed the team to go fast, all that supporting structure was dismantled one piece at a time by a project manager who just didn't understand why it was there. Mm. That's not the only kind of system, though. I also saw a company go through a a large-scale, just-in-time inventory project, uh, and it worked. They got their inventory turns from three per year to nine per year or something like that, so using their capital three times more efficiently. Um, But in this one uh, particular division, the procurement manager got called on the carpet for a work stoppage that had lasted six hours or something like that. he decided it would never happen again, so he ordered something like four months' worth of uh, parts. Well, there went the entire just-in-time system because one guy uh, you know, acted in his own self-interest and, and harmed the organization. Yeah, yeah, one bad apple, right? Yeah, and you know, he wasn't even... He wasn't even deliberately harming it. He didn't understand right. the nature of the just-in-time system because he had only a local perspective. So one of the questions that really vexes me, uh, and and maybe our listeners can uh, write comments about how to avoid this, but you know, how do we find high-performance methods that are robust and self-correcting against single individuals who operate not in accord with the method. I mean, this is the same problem in the human scale the, that you are addressing uh, the technical side of, right? Which is, how do we build a system where the failure, because really you could view someone's um, decision to act in a way that torpedoes the benefits you're getting from some process as a failure. How do mm-hmm. you protect yourself against that failure? Where are the circuit breakers against um, you know, someone getting yelled at and deciding to um, take action to avoid getting yelled at again from right. from doing that sort of thing. Right. 
That is the question. Yeah. Well, awesome. So, <laughs> wow, we got we went both directions today, didn't we? We went we went all the way down into technical and all the way up into the you know organizational philosophical. Um, but I want to make sure that we kind of come back to the middle road where we were talking about this very interesting um, story that you've been telling around this stuff because I know we didn't get a chance to or we haven't yet uh, completed that arc. Right? There's still a few things that you uh, that you talk about here that I'd love to get your your summary of and or thoughts on. Well, I think uh, as we go through this series, you know, the earlier parts are really about uh, explaining why we need to change or, or why a certain group of companies are doing things so differently. Um, and as we get farther on through the series, it shifts much more into, okay, so how do we go about that? You know, uh, what what are the preconditions that have to be there? Mm-hmm. And I think the the one piece that we haven't even touched on yet is the one about using high leverage tools or mm-hmm. sharp tools uh, in our uh, local parlance. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Um, so, unsurprisingly, you and I have already uh, spent most of a really interesting hour talking about this stuff. Uh, we we certainly don't have to stop right now. Uh, but do you think it would make sense to kind of make this part one of two and come back? Maybe after you've had a chance to write a few more episodes in your series, episodes, articles in your series. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I've, I was talking to myself the other day. I'm like, have I really done like 110 of these of this show? It's hard to believe. Um, anyway, so do, do you think that would make sense? Or, or does, is there a good uh, way to spend a few more minutes kind of uh, wrapping up what's out there so far? Certainly, I think we're going to want to have you back regardless to talk about the other things that are coming up. But I'm just wondering whether you think it might make sense to – to break here and do a part two in the not too distant future that um, picks up from here. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. Okay, uh, as you say, an, an hour is a big commitment already. I don't want to <laughs> don't want to go too far beyond that. Um, but also, the next time we talk and and we talk about sharp tools, we might have some things to uh, to unveil. Yeah, there's always there's always stuff cooking here, and uh, you know, I mean, I know you and I both got to hear about spec a little bit before that um, came to light, and uh, it's sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes it's hard to say, "Oh man, I really want to talk about this in general," even though we sometimes have things that are very much a uh, uh, interesting bit of whatever to to share that maybe not might not commit to anything. I think people see what I'm saying, right? Is there's often things yeah. going on yeah. where we can talk about them later that we can't talk now, so I don't need to go into more of that. But uh, all right, well, cool. Well, I think um, then we'll do what I usually do, which is. Definitely want to have you back on for sure. I mean, even maybe more so in this case than is normally uh, the case, um, although it's always sincerely meant. Um, but also to leave room uh, for anything, not to cut it off here, but to leave room for anything else you think makes sense to talk about uh, today, if anything. No, I think I've uh, I've said quite a bit. Uh, and I'm going to leave it there and save the rest for the next cast. Cool. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, yeah, that, that'll be fun. And I'm, I'm glad we, uh, we did that because I think it'll make a good um, uh, set of bookends. Um, or maybe there'll be a part three. Who knows? All good. Um, well, cool. Then there is another question that I have to ask you before we wind down. And uh, this is one that I'm particularly – well, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I, I always love to hear your take on this. It's the question about advice. Um, so we always ask our guests to share with us a piece of advice, uh, whatever they like, you know, something they've had told them or whatever it is. Yeah, so this is going to sound kind of um, uh, mundane, but uh, from several conversations I've had lately, uh, I, I would recommend that everyone listening should learn how to read a company's balance sheet and its cash flow statement. And not just understand what the lines are, but be able to understand what they mean behind it and what you can interpret about a company by looking at those things. Cool. I love it. That's, that's, um, we've, we get a lot of really great advice. And I have to say, I would definitely count your advice that ended episode 100 among some of the best that we've gotten. But, uh, that's like great one. And I totally agree with you. That is definitely useful, but it's also, um, remarkably practical and so that that is an excellent addition to our rapidly growing stable of really good advice so thanks for that you know maybe we should uh have a special transcript somewhere of just all the bits of advice that's not a bad idea collected yeah that's not a bad idea collected advice of the cognicast there you go 
um, yeah, you know, I mean, our guests have said such wonderful, wonderful, inspiring, interesting, and practical things. Well, anyway, um, so that's awesome advice, but uh, we are wrapping it up here, so I can't forget, and I cannot uh, do this enough, but thank you so much for coming on today. Really, you definitely are one of my favorite people to have conversations with. Always so interesting. Clearly, you think deeply about this stuff. I think your insights are amazing and valuable, and it's really been cool to see the series develop. Um, I think a lot of people are really paying close attention to it. Um, you know, we're getting, we're getting good feedback. People are, are loving it. So it's, and it's, and it's fun, even though you've written this stuff, I really think it's, um, great to get together and have a, a conversation about it. Uh, just a different, um, I don't know. It just adds something to it. We were talking about live music earlier. It's almost like the live concert version of your, <laughs> yeah, exactly. of your album, right? So, uh, so yeah, there we go. There's a callback. Um, yeah, so it's been great. So, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. Uh, this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Michael Nygaard on Twitter at mtnygaard, M-T-N-Y-G-A-R-D. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.